I love Easter Sunday. It's the celebration. It's not only the best day of um, the year, but it's usually the hallmark of my Christian life, right? If Easter doesn't happen, uh, us gathering here together to celebrate and to worship really means nothing. But the fact that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again uh, is something that we can celebrate. And the truth is, Easter is not just for last Sunday. It's kind of like Valentine's Day, right? Where, you know, if you ever have those that refuse to celebrate Valentine's Day because, well, I love my spouse every day of the year. Well, that's good. In the same way Easter's true and that Easter's not just a one-time-a-year Sunday celebration, it's an everyday celebration. I need Jesus to be risen just as much this Sunday as he was last Sunday. I need him to be risen just as much six months um, in the future as he is right here, right now. I need to celebrate um, the death, burial, and resurrection every day because it's where the shackles, the chains, and the bondage, and where my life becomes free where I find grace and mercy and forgiveness. But the truth is, uh, some of us really struggle with that. Grace is a hard concept for us to grasp and us, for us to accept. That, you know, there was nothing that I did to contribute or to earn God's grace, favor, forgiveness. It was given to me. It was bestowed to me. And that is a very hard thing for us to receive. We like being self-sufficient. We like being... Um, you know, not in need of someone else. I don't know about you, but if someone gives me like five bucks or a quarter or a nickel, it's like I want to repay them because I don't want to be in debt to anyone else. And so grace is a hard concept for us to sometimes grasp. And oftentimes in our fervency and in our effort to please God and to love God and to show, you know, our appreciation for the cross, we can um, quickly make Christianity into a bunch of rules and very easily become legalistic and have our checklist of, well, I read my Bible in the morning and I listen to K-Love on the way to work and I, you know, I do this, I pray before my meal at lunch and our Christianity very quickly becomes this checklist of what we are to do. And for those of you that have been around Christianity long enough know that we can come up with some pretty weird uh, rules we, and we can come up with some pretty weird traditions. We're odd. Uh, let's just admit it sometimes. I can remember being in Bible college, and there was this girl named Hannah, and she had shown up, and it was about two weeks into the semester, and she was so excited because they were taking her for the first time to the mall to buy a pair of jeans. Because in her tradition and growing up, that Christians and Christian ladies didn't wear jeans. They wore skirts and dresses, and they didn't wear pants. And she was so excited because of the freedom of her friends, and she thought she was rebelling hardcore because they were going to take her to American Eagle and get her a pair of jeans, okay? I can remember growing up in church that our pastor lived alongside uh, the main road that you had to drive uh, to get to the church, and just a big, just a main road where a lot of people passed. And one of his hobbies was he loved to garden. And so Sunday mornings uh, in the summer and in the spring, after he was done preaching, he would go home and he would garden. And I remember having a special meeting at church because so many people had called and said, pastor's doing work on a Sunday, and he's breaking the Sabbath by working in his garden. And we had to have a special meeting just so that the pastor could say that I'm not breaking the Sabbath. I actually enjoy this. I find this to be relaxing, and I've already actually worked on Sunday, so Sunday probably wasn't his Sabbath day anyways. He's already preached. And I can remember a special meeting just so he could have the freedom, and so we could stop, people would stop calling the church to report to him that the pastor was gardening on Sunday, because everyone knew. I was reading this week that uh, from a famous author that when he grew up, his grandfather would not let them drink soda from a can or from a bottle because it had the appearance that they could maybe be drinking alcohol. So they had to pour it into a glass so that way you could clearly see what it was so that way it didn't give the appearance of anything evil. 
we as Christians, we can come up with some weird traditions and rules. My pastor growing up had this. He said that when they had a guest, everyone else, the entire congregation sat, stood up, the guests sat, and they sang them a song, okay? That's weird. <laughs> we sing happy birthday to Jesus, all right? That's a little odd, all right? But um, we can come up with these rules, these traditions, and these things that we think please Jesus, that make Jesus happy, and we can very easily reduce our Christianity to a checklist Christianity. And so that's what I want to address here this morning, and because Jesus addressed this himself um, oftentimes, and oftentimes it was the same group of people that he was confronting. In fact, these people were the people that he had the most turmoil, the most conflict, the most grief, and was probably the one that he was the sternest and strictest with were the Pharisees. They were the religious elite. They were the educated. They were the ones that should have known better. They were the ones that, you know, were these, had the zeal for God and had all these rules and these oral traditions and everything that everyone followed. And uh, they were often the ones that caught the rebuke of Jesus the most often. Um, we find him calling them brood of vipers. We find him saying that not even Sodom and Gomorrah is going to have it worse than you. Uh, we find them calling, he calling them the blind, leading the blind. And so it wasn't the, the sinful, it wasn't the tax collectors, it wasn't the ones that had been found in sexual sin that Jesus handled the sternness. It was actually oftentimes the religious, the one who had the rules, the one who did have the Torah, who had their oral traditions. And so if you'll turn with me to Matthew 15, um, we'll, talk, we'll look through the first 10 verses of Jesus and one of his encounters with the Pharisees. Page 971 in your pew Bible if you're using one of those. I'll read the 10 verses and then we will break it down from there. It says, Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Jesus replied, And why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, Whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is a gift devoted for God, he is not to honor his father with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition." You hypocrites, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, and, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain, and their teachings are but rules taught by men. Verse 10, Jesus called in the crowd, crowd to him and said, Listen and understand, what goes into a man's mouth does not make him unclean, but what comes out of his mouth, that is what makes him unclean. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you that you are risen today. Father, we thank you you've been risen for the last 2,000 years, and that is a reason to celebrate. So, Lord, I pray that we wouldn't um, be found as the Pharisees where our hearts are far from you and our worship and our practice and our rules are just done in vain, but I pray, God, that we would find your heart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. And so the Pharisees come to Jesus, and the first thing that they ask him is, you know, why is it that your followers? Why is it that your disciples don't keep with the traditions of men? And see, the truth is, they're not really concerned with what the disciples are doing. They're really trying to pin it back on Jesus. Why do the ones that follow you, why don't they obey the traditions of the church? And 
this washing of hands and this tradition that they're talking about wasn't something done for hygiene. It wasn't because they were concerned, uh, overly concerned with hygiene. They were concerned with, you know, it was, and it wasn't just an initial, like, pour a little water, pour a little soap, be done with it type of thing. This was a whole ritual of having to, you know, cleanse the fork, cleanse the spoon, cleanse the bench that you were sitting on, cleanse the robe that you were wearing. And really, where it stemmed from was in the Old Testament when the Levitical priest and only the Levitical priest entered the um, Holy of Holies, they had to go through a, a cleansing. But the Pharisees thought, you know, if we had to take it, you know, one step up. We've got to make it one step further, and we're going to apply this to all Jews, and all Jews must follow this tradition and this rule, and all Jews must be follow the cleanliness. And so they're trying to catch Jesus and pin it on Jesus and say, hey, what's wrong with you that your disciples don't keep with that? And so Jesus answers, and as Jesus typically does, with a question and doesn't even actually directly answer their question. He says, and why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition. And so the disciple, or the Pharisees, and what they're worried about is the tradition of men and the traditions of the church, and they're asking Jesus, why do you break those traditions? Jesus jumps straight to the word of God and says, and why do you break the command of God? You see the difference? The Pharisees are caught up with themselves and their own rules and their own laws and the things that they're doing, and Jesus says, why do you break the command of God? He goes on to say, for God said, honor your father and mother, We all know that. That's one of the Ten Commandments. And anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is a gift devoted from God, he is not to honor his father with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your own tradition. And see, the Pharisees had made this exception and they had made this allowance where, you know, Will, if you were going to have an inheritance that you were gonna, or you were going to have some money that you were going to take care of your parents whenever they were older, that if you gave that money to the, to the priest and you gave that money to the Pharisees and you gave it to the church, then you could say to your parents, hey, I'm sorry, but you're out of luck. The money, I gave it to church. And that seems like maybe a good thing, right? That they gave their money to the Pharisees and the church. But Jesus says this. He says, for the sake of your own tradition, you have nullified the word of God. So you've missed out on honoring and taking care of your mother and father for the sake of giving your money to the church because your own tradition has caused you to nullify the word of God. And so that's our first, my first point today is we gotta be careful that our traditions and our laws and our things that we make up don't nullify the word of God. And so the first thing is do not be religious. If any of you have ever heard of Jeff Foxworthy, uh, he is famous for his bit of you might be a redneck if. Uh, For example, you might be a redneck if your school district closes down for the first two days of deer season. Uh, (laughs) You think that's a joke? That is true where I am from, and it still is. You still have off the first Monday and Tuesday of deer season because everyone is hunting, uh, and you might be a redneck if. Well, I'm going to adapt you might be a redneck if with you might be religious if. And we're going to pray. Stick with me to the end. I hope to not offend any of you, um, we'll get there. You might be religious if you have a certain dress code that has to be obeyed when coming to church, or you have a certain expectation of what a preacher or a pastor has to wear in order to preach the Word of God. You might be religious. Let me give you an example. See, there's nothing wrong with wearing a suit and tie and wanting to dress nice um, and come to church in your Sunday best or wearing a dress and getting, 
taking your time in the morning and getting ready and looking your best for Jesus. There's nothing wrong with that. And if your heart is that I want to come in my best because I want to love God and show God respect and honor God with that, then by all means, please don't stop doing that. But if you come to church in your jeans and a t-shirt because you understand of the freedom of Christ and you're able to worship and engage in worship and experience the freedom that is bought and won in Christ and you're able to love God and enter in with praise just as much, guess what? I want you to keep doing that. The problem becomes when you take your set, your rules or your own convictions and those things and say, you know what, everyone else must dress like this, you know? Every, well, everyone else must, they must not have the freedom that I have, you know? They don't wear jeans and shirt. And then you start to impose that upon someone else. And the reverse is, you know, well, they don't wear a tie and they don't show reverence and respect for God. And you start to impose that on someone else as if that is what matters about them. You might be religious if you have a certain preference or certain style of worship and that is the only way that God can be worshipped and the only way that God can be adored. Some of us very faithfully and wish maybe sometimes that we would sing more hymns and I wish the hymns, this is, this, what's that? Oh, this, <laughs> this is, you know, this is true music and this is real music and these are lyrics that matter and think that this is the only thing that we should sing from. While others uh, have listened to Hillsong and Bethel and K-Love and appreciate to worship and honor God um, in that way. Guess what? You know that there's churches that don't even play any music and they just sing the Psalms um, a cappella? Guess what? That's just as much worship as what we did here on Sunday morning. You know that there's traditions in churches throughout that believe that playing the guitar or playing the drums is sin and a violation. But I don't know about you. I read in Psalm 150 that says, praise him with the harp, praise him with the lyre, praise him with loud banging, and praise him with all kinds of instruments. This is not... Where's my other one? This is not this. This is the holy word of God authored by him. Uh, this is a hymnal compiled of mostly songs between the 1700s and 1900s written by man. Um, this, there's nothing wrong with this. Is that if you worship this and this is what is great, please do it. But it doesn't make it the only right way. Neither does um, singing contemporary songs make it the only right way. Is that in all things, God is, be, is God being worshipped? Is God being praised? Is God being glorified? And is Jesus being lifted up? Right. Yeah, amen. We don't, it doesn't matter in what form or what style or, you know, maybe it's bluegrass, maybe it's rock and roll, maybe it's rap. But if, is God being glorified in the music and in your hearts as you sing and worship? You might be religious if there's a certain version of the Bible that you believe everyone has to abide by. You might be religious if you think every kid should go to public school. You might be religious if you think every person needs to be homeschooled. You might be religious if you think you cannot dance. Or you might be religious if you think you cannot have a glass of wine with dinner. You might be religious if you're sitting here going, yeah, everyone else is religious. Look at all them. Why don't they fix their religion? And you haven't stopped and checked your own heart and thought, maybe I'm being religious. Because maybe your religion is actually comparing yourselves to others and looking at others and finding all the flaws and nitpicking everyone else's things without really ever dealing with your own stuff. You might be religious if you have to, you know, after you sin, I got to feel bad for at least three hours and at least, you know, say this many prayers and then God is going to forgive me. You might be religious. I want to give you three reasons to avoid being religious and, um, and what they do and why it is harmful for us. And uh, point A is, for one, 
our traditions and our legalism and our rules and our laws and all the things that we follow, for one, they're very easily fixated on ourselves. Look what I can do. Look, I can earn God's grace. I can earn God's favor. Look, I read the Bible. I do this. And it's all this self-sufficiency and this self-righteousness and this earning of something that I can't earn. And it's very, it very often revolves around, look at me, look what I've done, and look who I am. And when we do that and when we serve that, what it doesn't do is glorify and honor that. It actually takes away and subtracts from the cross of Christ. Because if I can earn God's forgiveness and I can earn God's grace and I can earn his favor, then what's the need of that? That if I could just do it through my Bible reading and my praying and my evangelism and and all of my actions, then what I've done is then nullify the cross of Christ. But the, th- the truth is, is that we celebrate Easter because there was nothing that I could do to contribute to it. Is that Jesus paid a price that I couldn't pay and he did what I couldn't do. And so why now after I am saved and I have found Jesus, do I still want to try to work it out in the same way? Like I said, I need Jesus just as much six months from now than I do today, as I do today. I don't care if you've walked for Jesus with 50 years. Guess what? Your obedience and your laws, and maybe you got yourself real disciplined and real regimented. Guess what? You still need the cross of Christ just as the person that met Jesus yesterday. So don't be religious because A, it's fixated on yourself. Two, it subtracts from the cross of Christ. And number three, it makes Christianity a competition. And you start to look at others and you start to gauge others by, well, you didn't pray before your meal. Could you believe that? Will didn't pray before his meal, you know? And you start to look at others and say, you know, look what I've done. I've done this. They didn't do that. And instead of celebrating the victories and the triumphs of others, we start to look at them as competition. Well, I'm not, I'm not as good as them, or I'm not as religious as them, or I'm not as pious as them. And it reduces it to a competition among believers. And you miss the heart of people, and you miss the heart of what Jesus is going. That's what the Pharisees, they were so consumed with trying to catch Jesus and trying to find his flaws and find his mistakes that they looked over people in the process. So point number one, let's not be religious. Point number two, let's take a look at scripture. He says, you hypocrites, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain, and their teachings are but rules taught by men. You see, the Pharisees weren't advocating for some big, loose lifestyle. They weren't advocating for you just to run free and rampant sin and promoting that and doing that. That wasn't their big flaw. Their big flaw was that they missed the heart of God. Their big flaw was that even though they were going through the actions, even though they were going through the repetitions, and even though it even looked good to the outward appearance, it missed the heart of God. How many of you guys know that you can do a lot of good things and a lot of right things and a lot of noble things and have the wrong heart behind it? Just be a parent and watch, you know, you have a five-year-old knock over his sister. <laughs> Bryce, you knocked over your sister. You should probably apologize. Sorry. What's he doing? He's just saying sorry so that he can, doesn't have to face the consequences of the actions that are come later if he doesn't say sorry, right? But as good parents, do we let the sorry go? It's the right words. It's what he's supposed to do. It's the right response wrong heart. We want them to say it the right way. I have to give the example, I can hold a door open for people, that's a noble act. I can let all of you, I can hold the door open for all of you after church and let all of you go and say, you know, have a good Sunday. And you can think, oh, Ryan, how nice. 
That's so self-sacrificing, you know, so kind of you. But guess what? If in my heart all I want is that accolation, the applause and everyone to see how, you know, of a servant I am and all of that, guess what? It doesn't matter what my good act is if my heart is still selfish in the process. I think if we read the scriptures, we see this too. How about in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 13 where he's saying, you know, you can speak in the tongues of men and in the tongues of angels and you can have all the knowledge of the world, but if you don't have love, it's all for nothing. It says you can give all that you have to the poor and you can have faith that moves mountains, but if not love, you have nothing. We find it in Mark chapter 7 where... um, Jesus is telling about the people that have come and are placing money into the offering and two wealthy men come and they place a large amount in and then a lady comes and she places her last little coin in the offering and Jesus says, you know, look at her, great is her because the other men, they gave out of their wealth but this lady gave out of her poverty, she gave out of her heart and so Jesus is chasing the heart of things and he's after the heart and he's saying, you know, what matters to me more is that I have your heart, that your heart is abiding and loving in what I want. And see, the truth is, Jesus could care less about, you know, the clothes that you're wearing, the version of the Bible that you read, or what form of worship that you like. He cares a whole lot more about, you know, how you're treating your spouse, how you're raising your kids, how are you handling that problem with anger, how are you dealing with lust, what type of coworker are you? Because those things have a lot more of the heart of God than what I'm wearing or what traditions I may keep or what laws I may follow. And see, the truth is legalism can never bring those things about. Legalism and laws will never make me a better father, will never make me a better husband, will never make me a better coworker. The only way that that is done is that when I cherish and I honor and I worship and I adore the cross of Christ and I celebrate Easter every single day, it's when I bow my knee before the Lord and say, God, I need you. And then the Holy Spirit comes and does a transformative work in my life because I need the cross of Christ and I need Jesus and him crucified. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ in me. I must decrease, he must increase. Apart from him, I can do nothing. See, my rules and my repetitions can't make, or repetitions can't make me any better. I need to sit and kneel at the foot of the cross. And see, legalism at the end, it it becomes very exhausting because you have a God that you can never please and a God that is always unhappy and rules that you can never keep. And it eventually becomes exhausting because you try and you try and you try and you try and you just can't ever seem to get it right. Ask any of you parents that maybe have had teenagers and you've done the, you know, well, they were in church and they were in Sunday school and I sent them to Christian school and they had all of it. Guess what? Is that if they don't have a heart relationship with Jesus and they aren't connected to Jesus, guess what? It won't matter how much they've had in the form or the practice or the ideas or the safety of Christian school. They have to be connected to the heart and the cross of Jesus Christ. And so, I don't care that you can memorize 2,000 Bible verses I don't care if the only radio station that you listen to is K-Love. I don't care. It doesn't impress me. Because the more, that you, the more that you read those scriptures and the more that you fall in love with Jesus and the more that you know about Jesus and the more that you worship Jesus, guess what? It should result in two things. It should result in more accolation, praise, and glorification of God. And two, it should lead to more love of his people. So one, let's not be religious. Two, 
Let's have hearts that honor and are close to God. And number three, we look at verses 10 and 11. Jesus called to the crowd and said, listen and understand what goes into a man's mouth that does not make him unclean, but what comes out of his mouth, that is what makes him unclean. This one set the Pharisees off. If you find later that the disciples come to Jesus and say, did you know that that made the Pharisees really mad? Because Jesus finally answers their question, saying, your tradition's so worried about being, going through all this cleanliness and baptizing the spoon and the towels and everything because you think that what goes into your mouth is what makes you unclean. And Jesus is saying, nope, it's what comes out of the mouth that makes it unclean. Another verse in Luke says, for out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. See, it's what's going on in here comes out. You know, so if you ever want to real change your actions or change your things, or you want to know what's really going on, you got to look into what's in the heart. Because what comes out in your actions, your thoughts, um, in your conduct is really just a product of what you were holding dear and what you were loving in your heart. And so what you hold dear in here and what you love will always affect what you do. So we often get concerned with, you know, the movies that we watch or the music that we listen to. What it really is is a, a love in here that makes me want to take that in. I give this example often in youth group um, is that if you have broccoli and a large chocolate cake, okay, that you can know all the nutritional facts. You could know from health class, from your parents, from everyone teaching to you that broccoli is by far the healthier choice um, day in, day out broccoli over chocolate cake. Is it dark? (laughs) It's whatever kind of chocolate you want it to be, all right? (laughs) And you can know deep down, and you can know all the facts about it, and you can know all that, but guess what? If in your heart you love chocolate cake more than you love broccoli, most of the time you're going to choose to eat that chocolate cake over the broccoli. Because until you have a love for being healthy, and have a love for your health, and have a love for that that is greater than the love of chocolate cake, guess what? you'll always continue to choose the chocolate cake. And so it is with sin and the things in our life is that, you know, we think that we can just, you know, discipline them out of our lives or the 21, ha- 21 days to a new habit and we can just get rid of it that way. Guess what? Is that as long as you have a heart and an affection and a love for your sin that is greater than the cross of Christ, then what you will produce is uncleanliness. Martin Luther, uh, before the Reformation, before he was... Um, before he found Jesus was a monk that tried many forms and many routes to um, basically beat or scourge sin from him. If monks would sleep on uncomfortable beds, they would sleep with um, itchy sheets. He would go out and lay in the cold snow, um, you know, to beat his body, to try to make him rid himself of sin. He would eat mundane foods and boring foods and boring soups in an attempt to try to save himself and to, to earn forgiveness for his sin, all to no avail. After years upon years of these practices, these habits, what he was left with was still that he was still a sinner and still afflicted by the same problems and the same sin because you can't save yourself through your actions, through your words, through your coming to church, through your readings of the Bible. The only thing that can save yourself is when you kneel before Jesus and say, Lord, you make me clean. That it has to happen inside. That the only thing that can cleanse me and change me is something from the inside. And that is the only thing that can do that is the cross and the power of Jesus Christ. And so 
um, as Derek comes to close us out, the truth is we can um, sometimes think and we can look at the Pharisees and go, geez, Pharisees, got it wrong again. You screwed up again. You done messed up. And we look at it and go, ah. But the truth is, is that we're all way more like the Pharisees than we ever want to admit. We ourselves love the idea of self-sufficiency, of being independent, of not being in need of the grace and the mercy of Christ. Look what I can do. I want to do it. Look, you know. But the truth is we all need Jesus. I need Jesus. Even David himself in Psalm 51 after he had just committed adultery and he had slept with Bathsheba, he says this, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit. Even David recognized that he couldn't create a clean heart in himself. He couldn't restore the joy of his salvation unto himself. He was coming before God and saying, cleanse me and create in me a pure heart. And so we're going to close with the song. Uh, There's a song written probably about 20 years ago by Matt Redman. And it's, saying, it's a song called Coming Back to the Heart of Worship. Because uh, it's not about me. It's not about my practices. It's not about my ideas or what I think is best or what I think's right. It's about him. The heart of the gospel is about him. The heart of Easter is about him. And I need that just as much today as I did yesterday. The opening line is, when the music fades and all is stripped away, and I simply come, longing bring, longing to bring something that's of worth. I'll bring you more than a song, for a song in itself is not what you have required. You're searching much deeper within. So today, let's, um, let's make it about him. Let's continue to make it about him um, and his work. After the song is done, Brother Dino will... Um, close us in a benediction. When the music fades and all is stripped away and I simply come Longing just to bring Something that's of worth That will bless your heart I bring you more than a song For a song in itself Is not what you have required You search much deeper within through the way things appear you're looking into my heart I'm coming back to the heart of worship and it's all about you 
It's all about you, Jesus. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I made it. And it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. King of endless worth, no one could express how much you deserve. Though I'm weak and poor, all I have is yours, every single breath. I bring you more than a song, for a song in itself is not what you have required. You search much deeper within. Through the way things appear You're looking into my heart I'm coming back to a heart of worship And it's all about you It's all about you, Jesus I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it and it's all about you it's all about you jesus i'm coming back to a heart of worship and it's all about you it's all about you jesus sorry lord for the thing i've made it and it's all about you it's all about you jesus